Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Hi, welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast, America's number one source for safer, smarter, more profitable investing, where we look to bring you the very best ideas from the very best, very best minds in the business, completely filter-free. I am your host, Charles Sizemore. So today you are in for a treat. I have my car on and we are going to geek out. Our theme today is nerds with numbers. Now, before you run away screaming with words like geek out, nerds, numbers, et cetera, there actually is a point to this. This isn't geekery for geekery's sake. We're actually doing this to help you profit by understanding the metrics, understanding these numbers. We're aiming to help you uh, position yourself for the next bull market when that happens, and also to potentially profit here from bear market rallies. Until proven otherwise, we are still in a bear market. Uh, before I get into that, I do have to keep the uh, little men in gray suits happy. Uh, this is just Mike and I sharing some numbers, having a good chat here. This is not uh, specific investment advice. If you do want to get, um, if you want to read our full disclaimer, we can put the link for that below. So, Mike, before I, I, I jump into it, I, I do want to get your opinion on something. Our, you know, you're a geek, I'm a geek. We, we like to play with numbers, that's that's what we do. But if there is someone on our team that's, that's sort of the chief geek, I guess it would have to be Amber. She used to be a data quant for Bloomberg. So I think that makes her the queen of, of geeks on our team. So that's, we can only aspire to that level of geekiness, but, uh, but that's okay. Someday I, I hope to be as big of a geek as Amber. But she, she put some numbers out and uh, she, she circulated this around the office, and I want to get your opinion on it. So bear with me. I'm going to share my screen. I always turn into my father when I do this and become tech illiterate. So just give me a minute, and uh, I'm going to bring this up here. What, what, what are we looking at here? Okay, so, so this is the 1,500 stocks that make up the S&P 1,500. This is a broader metric. You know, Everyone knows the S&P 500, 500 biggest stocks. S&P 1500 is a bigger brush stroke, if you will. It, it covers a bigger piece of the market. So it covers more mid and small caps as well. And what this, what this does is it took the stocks that were in the index at the bottom of the, you know, the 2000, 2002 bear market. So that big tech shakeout that, uh, you know, we, we remember that you, you were trading through it. I was trading through it. That was... Um, in some ways, quite similar to the market we're in today, but this is, you know, to be clear, this is what this is what happened post shakeout. This is the stocks that were already still in the index post shakeout. This is what they look like today, and what we're seeing is of the original fifteen hundred stocks, only forty one percent of them are still trading and still in the index. You know, the rest have either been acquired. Delisted, you know, delisted usually means they went out of business or the the, the company got in so bad of shape that that the the index was the the, uh, the New York Stock Exchange or Nasdaq was no longer willing to list them, so that they ended up you know going to the abyss of the pink sheets or whatnot. Um, it, these stocks are no longer tradable, and so I have kind of my thoughts on this as to to kind of what this means and what you should take away from it. But I'd like to hear your take on it first. Well, I think it's important to remember these are the largest companies. So these are the S and P fifteen hundred includes six hundred small cap stocks, but they're not really super small companies. These are stable. S and P selects them because they're stable. 
these are not little dinky startups or whatnot. I mean, these are these are companies that are at least generally several hundred million or a couple billion. Like they're not they're they're not chump change. Correct. And then you know, forty percent, forty one percent are active, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're profitable. Forty eight percent were acquired, but Twitter was acquired, and it was acquired thirty percent below its high. So a lot of investors lost money on that Twitter takeover. And that's a good point. We say it's acquired. Why were they acquired? They might have been acquired because they got ripped to shreds and somebody was essentially picking over the body like a vulture and just acquiring what was left of the assets. And that is one of the more common acquisitions that we see. So rather than just looking at how many survived, I think it's important to look at how many were profitable for investors. And coming out of that bottom, over the next three years, 39.9% of the actively traded stocks on all exchanges, so I'm looking beyond the 1,500, just 40% created shareholder value. And 0.98% accounted for over half of all of the market value created. So it's important to remember, over the long run, it is very difficult to spot winners which is why I prefer the short-term trading approach. Yeah, no, that that's, I would agree with that. And I would take that even a little bit of a step further. So my takeaway on this is, okay, yeah, you know, 41%, fine, whatever. What that tells me is the winners of the previous bull market are generally not the winners of the next bull market. Now, sometimes you get stocks that are just in this phenomenal growth mode and you know they 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 pick up where they left off and continue leading fine. That's really quite rare. What generally happens is the the winners, you know, the, the, the stocks that really knock the ball out of the park in, in the last bull market. Once that dust settles, the bear market's over and a new bull market begins, it's there's usually new winners. And that's, you know, if you are stuck in, if, if you still have these positions, these legacy positions that you held on to in 2000, 2020, 2021, you were thinking, hey, you know, sure, that they're, they're down, but they're going to come back because they always do, you know, buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip. Well, buy the dip is not always the best strategy. Sometimes sell the rally is, and we can get into that a bit later. Before we do that, though, so the the numbers here are, I'd say, you know, slightly better, but this is also more recent. These are the survivors of the 2008 um, bear market. So these are the stocks that were in the S&P 1500 at the uh, kind of first quarter of 2009. Uh, once the dust had settled from the 2008 meltdown, the, the takeaway though is still the same. You see a comparatively few number of those stocks are, that were there are, are still there. Yeah, it's 58, fine, it's a higher number, but it's still really low. There's a lot of stocks that are that have fallen by the wayside. A, a lot of losers that got shaken out and are just done. They're just lost to history now. Um, I know you're a student of the market. I know you're actively trading at that time. You know, what, uh, do, you, do you have some stats on that of your own? Well, my numbers are very, very similar again to the 2002 bottom. 41.35% of companies, all actively traded companies, created wealth. 60% lost money in the three years coming out of that bottom. And 
1.52% counted for 50%. So the number of winners is always going to be relatively narrow. And then in the long run, I know we're looking at two specific time periods. There's a study that goes back to 1926, and the results are pretty much the same. Over the long run, most companies lose money for shareholders. Um, managers tend to do just fine uh, for some reason. 57.8% <laughs> of stocks that have traded since 1926 lost money for shareholders. So 58% of all companies that have ever traded were losers. Just 42% were winners, and just half a percent account for the majority of the gains. Five firms accounted for 22% of all gains since 1926. That's that, that, kind of hard to believe almost, but it's true. And, and we're, we live, it's one of the things that actually kind of separates the U.S. from the rest of the world. Um, this is something Adam wrote about actually uh, last week. He wrote about, you know, Adam is another um, just geeky guru here. He's he's definitely a numbers guy. He uh, he pointed out just the creative destruction element of the U.S. stock market. We are constantly creating new companies, and we're constantly getting rid of companies that fail, or as, as we saw in some of this data from Amber, get acquired. Um, just and again, get acquired oftentimes just as a, as a carcass being picked over by vultures. So it is always changing. I think that is why you know you do have to be nimble as an investor. It's so much easier to just buy and hold an S and P five hundred index fund and be done. And if you do that over a long enough window, yeah, you'll make some money. I mean, if if you look at you know rolling twenty year, rolling thirty year periods, as a general rule, you got to make something, right? But you're not, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're starting particularly now when we may just be halfway through a bear market, your look ahead returns are not likely to be great. Now, I have some thoughts on that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to here a little bit later. But before I, I do that, I think this is actually, um, why don't we re revisit some, something from, from last week? You, uh, you gave a presentation on the great silicone shakeout. And that to me is, is very, it's very timely because, okay, right, right now we're looking at, okay, we're looking at that next bull market, what happens when the dust settles, but we're not there yet. Like there's still dust to be settled, right? And so what do you do? Do you just, do you sit on your hands? Do you, do you, do you try to buy dips and kind of play it short term? Or do you potentially, you know, sell the rallies here? And I know you have some thoughts on that. Well, I think I have a chart that you can share, um, which oh, really yes. puts this idea of rally in perspective. So this is the 2000 to 2002 bear market we're going to look at. And that in the NASDAQ 100, the losses were about 85% top to bottom. But there were 36 times when the index moved up by at least 10%. That's a large number there. So we had 36 times when basically traders lost their minds, long-term investors lost their minds and said, hey, it's all over. It's coming back. 
and they were disappointed 35 times. So eventually they were right. You know, the clock that stuck is right twice a day. Um, but here's the thing, Mike. I don't know that they were right because if you think about it, you get ground down. If you're like, hey, this is it. Like, this is the bottom. I'm going to buy right now. It's, it's finally over. You know, I'm back in. Oh, actually, no, it has more downside. Okay, well, I just lost more money. Okay, well, oh, this is the bottom. Now, 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 this is it. This is the bottom. Yeah, no, it's not. Yeah, so it's death by a thousand cuts. So by the time you finally get to that bear market bottom, you may not have any capital left to trade. You may just be scared out of the market. You may have just completely lost your, your tolerance for risk. You may be, uh, I don't know, flipping hamburgers by then. You, you, may, you may no longer be in the market. Yeah, I was managing money in the next bear market. So 2008 bear market, um, I was managing money. We were using something new at the time called ETFs. So we had a lot of skepticism about our business model, and we were using uh, inverse ETFs actually making money during the decline. And we would meet with a lot of investors who had suffered just catastrophic losses. They couldn't retire. They were going to have to work an extra five years. They couldn't send a child to college. I mean, it's tragic when you see what a bear market does to people. And that's why you have to accept the facts rather than, I know Tesla is a great company and I know people are gonna argue with me. Why are they cutting prices today if there's so much in demand? You know, yeah. the company is struggling. I have a price target of 11 bucks on it. We got a lot of downside. Well, there. You're, even more, you're even more bearish than Adam on that. Adam saw the stock going back to its um, kind of mm -hmm. beginning of the pandemic levels. Um, you're, you're actually, you actually see it going lower than that. Yeah, I think that's the beginning of the decline. I think that's the pullback. And then you really start the decline. Um, a lot of that money is locked up by individual investors. A lot of individual investors want to believe Tesla is the greatest company ever. Um, obviously, if it is, then Twitter is too, because the same CEO is going to fix that problem. But Oh, good, good night. Good until, luck with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Until that happens, he's deeply distracted. Cutting prices is a huge sign that something's not working. I don't know about you. When I go to the grocery store, I haven't seen a lot of prices cut. No. And it, when, you're, when you're marketing a premium brand, mm -hmm. it's, it's death to your brand to cut prices too much. I mean, if you're selling this exclusive uh, quality product, Price sends a message. Like when you have a premium price, it shows that I'm selling something of quality. When you slash that price, it's a very damaging psychological message. So, yeah, I think that's that's it. We, we don't need to go completely rip Treader, right. uh, Tesla to shreds again. But I I do think that's that's kind of part of the shakeout the shakeout story. Yeah, there are opportunities here to you know, in a bull market, you buy the dip. In a bear market, you sell the rallies. And this is something you, you talked about a lot in your Silicon Shakeout presentation um, last week, actually. Uh, for anybody watching this, if you missed Mike's presentation, you can watch it. It's, it's still live. It was recorded. So we can put the link down below. It is something I really recommend. I tend to take the view. I, I tend to be sort of 
directionally agnostic on the market for the most part. I, I try not to make big directional bets, but you put a gun to my head and you say, hey, is the market going to be higher or lower six months to a year from now? If history is a guide, I'm going to say it's probably going to be lower. Um, I remember the, the 2000, 2002 bear market. There were a couple instances where the market actually rallied by 20, 30. I think once it actually rallied by more than 40%. And you're thinking that, okay, it's dot-com mania again. We're, we're, back, we're back in business. But then it just rolled over and disappointed again. So uh, you, you do get this, um, you know, Adam talked about this a lot over the last couple of weeks, this, this multiple compression where uh, the prices that seem to make sense at the top of the bull market no longer make sense. And even, even good companies, their multiples get compressed. Investors are, are less willing to pay for that. So, you know, kind of the takeaway here, you know, if you are looking to, you know, if you are skeptical of of, of this market right now, and it, it's off to a decent start this year, um, January has been sort of a mixed bag. It hasn't been off to the races, but it hasn't been a disaster either. Yeah, if you think this could be just kind of a calm before the storm, you know, selling those rallies, you know, finding a way to do that makes a lot of sense, and that that's really where Mike, where your where your silicone shakeout story makes sense, like that you actually profit. From um, you, you profit from the downside. Yeah, exactly. And you know, let's look at that idea of you know the companies that just didn't make it. Then um, something different now between two thousand and today is interest rates. Interest rates are rising, and the typical CEO in a Silicon Valley company wasn't even alive in the last interest rate cycle where rates went up. That ended in 82. So we have a lot of CEOs running these companies who don't know what it's like for interest rates to rise. We also have a lot of people on Wall Street trading desks in fixed income who don't know how to trade this kind of cycle. So no. we're going to have a lot of volatility. I think you'd really struggle to find anyone who really was trading this market the last time you were in a rising interest rate environment. You're talking about late 70s, early 80s. And anybody that would still be trading today, I mean, they would have been, I mean, they would have been a kid, essentially. I mean, they would have been at the very beginning of their career in that in that market. And you know, they wouldn't have had any real experience. I mean, they would have been, you know, carrying the briefcase of, of the guy actually doing the trades at that stage of their career, right? Right. So yeah, they're you know, retiring it's, now. Yeah, I mean, these these are these are the old, you know, these are the old fogies that that we even have a memory of that, and, and even mm -hmm. if they have a memory of it, they weren't really trading it, right? So it it really is kind of uncharted territory. And you mentioned interest rates. Think about how easy money has been, and, and how any you know. Anybody with kind of, you know, a good story to tell could find somebody to give them private equity money or venture capital money or, or whatever. I mean, money was free. So it was distributed like candy. Just, you know, here's your startup money. Here's your startup money. Here's your startup money. That creates a very uh, lax attitude towards cost control, creates a very lax attitude towards risk management. Why am I going to worry about cost control if there's just an unlimited spigot of money that I can dip into if if you know my growth rates don't quite pan out like I thought or you know my, my cost overruns or I had to spend too much on this or that? There's always more money coming from Wall Street, so who cares? Well, now that you actually have competition from Treasuries, so now that that rates are higher and people are less likely to just 
you know, throw that proverbial plate of spaghetti on the wall and see what, what sticks, you are, you're going to have a lot of panicking tech CEOs that don't know what to do. They've never actually had to be capital efficient before. They've never actually had to watch their wallets. So that, that really does kind of feed back into your shakeout story of, okay, they're going to have to learn how to do more with less. That means they're going to have to cut their own expenses. And remember, everyone's expense is somebody else's revenue and tech companies are each other's sources of revenue. So tech company A has to cut back. Well, that's cutting into the revenues of tech company B who they were buying from, right? So it takes time for this to play out. That's why I I think this shakeout scenario is not done. You would think, hey, 2022 is the rough year. It's not done. Like we still have more time on this. Now I want to geek out. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Let me give a specific example of a great ETF right now for individuals to look at. SGOV, Sierra Golf Oscar Victor. It's short-term treasuries. The yield is 4.21%. The duration, which is a measure of risk, is 0.1. So you don't even have a month's worth of so basically. What duration tells us is how much you're going to lose if interest rates go up 1%. Yes. And you're looking at losing less than one month's worth of interest if rates spike right now, and you're getting 4.21% risk-free. This is just incredible in a market like this, that that's sitting there. So if you're holding cash, wondering what to do, don't hold it too long. Like you also mentioned earlier, a lot of investors became shell-shocked on the way down. And we saw that too when I was managing money. People who missed the bottom, they were afraid to get back in. They had those losses. They missed the easy games. White knuckle fear. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Now it's 10 years till they can retire. So, you know, SGOV is a short-term parking lot right now. Uh, definitely something to consider. We, we are definitely geeking out when you bring up the concept of modified duration. That's like MBA level yeah. finance stuff. So good job. That's uh, you, you yeah. get the, the, the geek crown for that one. But that is uh, about that. So there's a perception that bonds are less risky than stocks, right? That's not necessarily true. If you go longer on the yield, on the, uh, the yield curve, if you buy 20 and 30 year bonds, those actually got hit harder than stocks in 2022 because they have such uh, sensitivity to interest rates. They have very high modified duration. So, you know, 1% increase in uh, interest rates could mean a 20% decline in price or more, depending on how long the bonds are, what their, their current semi right. annual um, payments are, et cetera. So, the fund that you recommended that you just mentioned just now, that has essentially none of that. Like, that really is. As the risk-free rate. Those are short-term government bonds with effectively no time to maturity. So uh, interest rates can go up. If the, Fed, if the Fed goes nuts and raises rates by 200 basis points tomorrow, which they're not doing, but let's just say they do, it's not really going to hit a fund like that very hard. I mean, you may have a blip or something that day, but it's like their, their sensitivity to interest rates is, is just about nil. Which is, which is nice. Well, sure. as long as we're on interest rates, the CPI came out yesterday, so I updated my forecast. And I have the Fed possibly pausing at about 5% in May. That's when inflation will drop below headline CPI, according to my calculations. 
And right now we're just working through the high inflation, the way it's calculated. Right now, inflation from the Fed's perspective is a math problem. Um, yeah. Because the Fed doesn't go to the gas station or the grocery store. They don't know prices are high. But they're treating it as a math problem. Their math problem reaches equilibrium uh, April, May. So we are near the end of the hikes. I don't think we get a cut this year because I show inflation inching back up late in the year. So we'll see how that works out. Yeah, it's interesting. You're you're kind of echoing some things that Ian King wrote about um, actually, I think two weeks ago. He wrote a piece saying his big prediction for 2023 is that the Fed will, will actually pivot and a lot sooner than most people think. So he, he thinks mm -hmm. uh, his, his timeline is a little bit more flexible than yours, but I think he 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 sees them topping out roughly when you do or, or perhaps a month or two after but um so that's that's interesting you guys are in, in kind of general agreement on that uh, I, th I think you could be right if you know we are seeing signs of the economy cooling and if that accelerates and picks up then you know the fed's not they're not gonna have a choice they're gonna have to back off whether they actually start cutting rates you know we'll see about that that's that's a much bigger step but i i think the likelihood that they at least stop uh, stop raising them I think you're, you're you're likely right on that. So you, you're you're familiar with this, Mike. This is the Schiller PE ratio, also called the CAPE, the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. This this metric is flawed. You know it, I know it, but I I do like to use it as a very quick and dirty way to kind of say where is the market today? Um, is it expensive? Is it cheap? You know, broadly. You know, but what does that really mean, right? Now the biggest issue with this is uh, you see today we're we're kind of we're not uh, you know it's come down obviously as, as stock prices have come down this metric has come down and actually let me back up for a second what what what, what are we looking at what is the cape it's it takes a 10-year average of earnings and compares it to today's prices you know why 10 years because in any 10-year period you're likely to have a boom a bust everything in between so it smooths out the the, the economic cycle the problem with just the, the plain Jane, you know, original price earnings ratio is that in any given year, uh, the earnings may be elevated or you know depressed based on what was going on in the economy. So th this this smooths that out by taking an average. Okay, great. Okay, so, so I can jump in there a little pet peeve here. Please, Schiller, do. Schiller, who developed this, won a Nobel Prize for it, and one he did not develop. Help it actually. Yeah. I, I am going to correct the corrector. This was this was around in the time of Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett. That's what I was going to say. Schiller uh, never read a practical book. Ben Graham said use eight years in Intelligent Investor, and Schiller won the Nobel Prize. We also, if we go back to the '60s, Sharp wins a Nobel Prize for Beta. An analyst called Gartley wrote about that in the Financial Analyst Journal in 1945. A guy named Rhea wrote about that in 1933 in Barron's. So these Nobel Prize winners don't read the same books we do, and they reinvent things we already know about. But they got they use really cool math in their white papers yeah. to make an existing concept look right. <laughs> well, they don't make it better, but they use Greek letters. So no, no, they made it look Greek better and look more mysterious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm waiting for so they, they did, Let me be clear. They did I not make Greek. it better. They, yeah, they didn't make it better. They just made it look more mysterious with Greek letters. Right. So, yeah, no, I, I, you're absolutely right about that. Anyway, so the Cape it was at its all time highest 
during the dot-com boom in, in late 90s, you know, very early 2000. Um, it, it got kind of close to those levels um, into 2021, and it, it's corrected a little bit. The biggest problem with this is that it makes no adjustment for interest rates. So, okay, yeah, you know, stocks are trading at PE ratio of, you know, fill in the blank, but that's not really meaningful by itself because in a low interest rate environment, stocks should be more expensive. In a high, high interest rate environment, stocks should be cheaper. Okay, what, what is this? So rather than take the CAPE, which is a fancy price earnings ratio, we're flipping that upside down to make it an earnings price ratio. Why? Because then it's, it's easier to compare bond yields. And so what this does is this takes that, that inverse, the, 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 the CAPE upside down, and it subtracts bond yields. Now, it, to be clear, it's not just the headline bond yield; it's the uh, it's the real yield. So it's the it's the after inflation yield. And so, of course, things are a bit weird today because uh, bonds are actually you know bond yields are actually uh, below the rate of inflation and have been for a while. But you see here, um, actually, what are we looking at here? When you get to the bottom of that purple box, that shows that stocks are really expensive relative to bonds. When you get to the top part of that purple box, it means that stocks are cheap relative to bonds. And so what I find interesting here is this metric hasn't really gotten that much cheaper over the last year, because even though the market fell, well, so did bonds. So yeah, stocks got cheaper, but cheaper relative to what? Everything else got cheaper too. It was a bear market in practically everything. So I think this is interesting. You know, my takeaway from this is actually something we said earlier. If you are looking to just park money, if you're looking to just, you know, buy and hold for the next 20, 30 years, or whatever, you're not getting a great entry point right now. Like we're, we're, we're actually on the more expensive end of things rather than you know, the cheaper end of things. So you know, what kind of returns can you really expect getting into this at today's prices? You're probably looking at something in the low single digits. I think if you if you buy today and you just hold on to it for the next 20 years, you're probably not going to lose money, but your return based on today's prices is probably going to be less than 5% a year. And I, I don't know about you, Mike, but I would certainly like to make more than that. Um, well, I think um, what I'd like to point out here is, again, Schiller's lack of reading practical books. Yeah, but he teaches at Yale, so he's cool. He's smarter than me. I'll give him that. But <laughs> I think, uh, and he's probably read more books than I have, but I have focused on the practical rather than the theoretical. And Cape uh, excess Cape right now definitely pointing towards lower returns long run. I agree with that because interest rates are high. So I can yep. get 4% risk-free. A lot of investors are going to want to take that and they're going to take money out of stocks to do that. But just like I said, if you're looking at um, you know returns, you know look looking ahead stock returns annualized of you know whatever four or five percent, well treasuries are basically there, so why do anything else, right? So I, I think I think you're I think we're on I think we're in agreement on that. We are. So let's move on. You know we kind of had fun geeking out here. Um, this is good stuff. You know, takeaway if you are lost in our sea of numbers here is 
the next year is likely going to be challenging. Um, the, the this is not a good entry point for buy and hold investing. This is really more of a trader's market. That's been the case for a while, and I expect it will continue to be the case for at least the next six to twelve months. We'll keep you posted, of course, but that's that's how it's looking, kind of bird's eye view. Okay, so let's move on. So we have some questions come in, and for anybody watching, we love answering your questions. Uh, this really helps us help you. Uh, Mike and I can geek out all day. Um, all of our all of our colleagues, we can geek out all day. But at the end of the day, we need to know what uh, what you actually want and need to hear. So please send us your comments. Please send us your questions. So getting into it. This was interesting because Ian King wrote a piece about a month ago. It's actually, we're coming up on the one month anniversary of this piece and we're still getting comments about it. Ian wrote about firing China. Like that was his theme. It's his theme of uh, deglobalization and, you know, re-onshoring and all of that. And we're, we're still getting comments from it. So Bruce wrote in to say, many years ago, when I saw the move of the U.S. buying everything from China, I thought it was a mistake. And I'm not a highly intelligent person at all. Well, I would tend to disagree with that. I think you're quite intelligent. But anyway, I digress. It made no sense to me, and I cannot understand how unwise that was and is. Finally, something dramatic had to happen to shake some sense into that poor decision-making. Hopefully, we can buy Made in America products sooner than 10 years. Now, I actually think this Made in America theme is, this is one of the great themes of the next next decade, I mean, the, the anti-globalization, deglobalization, you know, whatever you want to call it, fire in China, this is happening. It's been happening even pre-pandemic and the pandemic just massively accelerated it. But anyway, Mike, uh, what most people may or may not know about you is you actually spent you know, most of your professional life in the military. What most people don't know is the Rambo movies were actually based on uh, your biography. Uh, I, I'm joking, but uh, you know, you are you are you're a career military man. You know, do you uh, what what do you have to say on this? Uh, do you have any thoughts on on China, like the whole situation? Well, I think it's important to remember China is a communist country, and communist leaders, they're called in China cadres, um, are, are rewarded for lying. And I'm trying to make sure I say everything politically correctly. So we go back in history. We look at Mao's great leap forward. He said, we are going to create more steel than the UK in five years. And it required a tremendous effort to do that. Each district, each town was given a quota. And somehow they all met it. Most exceeded it. Yet no steel was produced. They just lie to get promoted. And that's been ingrained now in the country forever. So the official data is unreliable. Everyone is starting to realize that now with the COVID data, where China's just stopped reporting it because they can't fudge it enough. So what we do know is that we don't know anything about what's going on in China. Now, this is potentially inflationary, and I think we need to consider this as a risk. If the economy does recover and they are really pushing for recovery, they're going to have to move a massive amounts of fuel and raw materials to where it needs to be. Takes a lot of energy to do that. Bullish for the energy sector, bullish for inflation. Hopefully the Fed's watching this and won't let down their guard. Now, with Ian's point about onshoring, I definitely agree, but I also think that what we're going to need is more friend shoring. So the U.S., we just can't do it all. 
Um, we need our allies and we need our trusted allies to step up and build the required factories, take on some of that cost, take on some of the training, build the infrastructure, and then we trade with friendly countries rather than going out and finding countries that are looking to steal our technology and benefit from what we have done. So I don't trust China. I don't think they're going to be an ally anytime soon. And I think friendshoring is actually the way to go. And I hope our politicians are looking at building alliances. I got to say, this is the first time I've heard the word friendshoring. I, I like that. We need to trademark that. that that's, that's good stuff. You know, I came up with shrinkflation many years ago, and I should have trademarked that one. That's right. Very good. So uh, we had another question. Um, small caps are up about 7% so far this year. Would we be in a new bull market if they broke those November highs? Uh, well, Mike, this was actually a theme. We talked about, you know, dead cat bounces and whatnot on last week's podcast. What's going on here? Is this a dead cat bounce in small caps? Like, what does that look like to you? Yeah, unfortunately, it is most likely a dead cat bounce. Um, breaking the November high will be bullish, but we're going to roll over again. Small caps led the way down so far. They are recovering the strongest because a lot of people look at small cap indexes and say, well, historically, these recover quickly. There's a survivorship bias in that data. So in real time, the small cap companies are falling out of favor and they're dying. Those are the companies that are not being profitable. But the indexes cut those along the way. So the indexes deceive you into thinking small caps are bullish when in actuality they're the highest risk sector right now. So we have another leg down, the dead cap bounce. We did get a question on that. Uh, for the PETA people out there, the cat is dead before you drop it off the building. So it's already dead when it hits the ground and bounces. We didn't kill small the cat. Okay, let's just, just be clear. Yeah. Yeah. So small caps are dead for now. It's a great bounce. Definitely tradable. Use a trailing stop. And I think it'll work out fine. My in-laws almost disowned me. They, they live on a farm in Peru. And... Uh... You know, I was visiting there over the Christmas holiday and whatnot, and I befriended some little farm cat that was, they just kind of keep it around to chase mice away and stuff. And they're always kind of half scared of it because you know, the cat's like semi-feral. And they see me cradling the thing like a baby, like, like you know, mm -hmm. playing with it. And like, what are you doing, you crazy gringo? What's, what's wrong with you? But anyway, I digress. That cat is still alive and well and will not be bouncing anytime mm -hmm. soon. But at any rate, that, that wraps it up. Um, to our viewers, I would say if you, you, you found this, this concept of the ShakeOut interesting, you know, really do go back and watch Mike's uh, presentation on the Silicon ShakeOut. To me, this is one of the most insightful things that, that you can do for, you know, to, to start this year. I think this is one of the best opportunities you're going to find in the first you know, quarter or two of, of 2023. But uh, that's really going to wrap it up. Um, enjoy the rest of your holiday. It should be, I don't know, kicking a ball with your kids or grandkids or watching a movie or enjoying a day off work. So go do that and we'll pick this up next week.